What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them and those they influenced. Let's roll. What up, what up, Meepsters? I'm Ryan Rainbro, and today, clear the passenger seat for Beelzebub because we're meeping along as Devil Driver the 15th anniversary of their third album, The Last Kind Words. And we're going to be joined by guitarist Michael Spritzer, in the band then, in the band now, 15 years later and years prior. Because The Last Kind Words was the third album by Devil Driver, of course spearheaded by former Cole Chamber, sometimes current Cole Chamber vocalist, Des Bradley Fafara. Bradley remember apparently he doesn't want you to he doesn't like being called that weird to write a song about it huh anyway devil driver puts out the album the last kind words and this comes after fury of the maker's hand and our fury of our maker's hand the maker our maker he's whoever's maker you want him to be and their self-titled debut so they were uh at a pivotal point in time in their career when this album comes out because the debut album of Devil Driver is kind of seen as a continuation of Cold Chamber because that's what Dez is known for. So they're kind of, they have a stigma on them with that. Then they release The Fury of Our Maker's Hand, which is certainly a step in the right direction towards what they would ultimately become and heralded by many Devil Driver fans as their finest work. But with their third album, The Last Kind Words, they would cement their legacy and their direction as a band, their identity really as a whole. So we will find out if that's how Devil Driver felt or if it's me just projecting my feelings onto them with guitarist Michael Spritzer, and I bring that to you now. That's exactly how I feel about it. The first record definitely kind of felt like Cold Chamber. Well, not Cold Chamber 2, but Devil Driver hadn't really figured out where it was going yet. And, you know, especially with Evan Pitts leaving after the first record, me coming in on the Fury, I wasn't, you know, the new guy in the band, so I had to tread lightly. And I didn't want to be too pushy. And with, you know, putting, getting my material onto the record had a little bit of bargaining chips against the guys because I was the one behind the computer recording everything we were doing our demos. So, at, you know, I kind of did what I was told and, you know, got some writing input on there like Pale Horse, uh, Pale Horse Apocalypse and Hold Back the Day. So last kind of words, I started getting a little bit more pushy. And I didn't really have to 
fight with Jeff and Miller as much as uh, me and Berkland just did not really see eye to eye on a lot of things, but it didn't, it didn't keep us from being creative with one another. So yeah, I, I, you know, with the Fury, everyone was like, okay, you know, this isn't Cold Chamber Part Two. Maybe this is their own, you know, a band that I could uh, listen to, even though I don't like Cold Chamber. Um, And with Last Kind Words, everyone was, everything like, oh, you guys have a guy from a new metal band in your band, so you suck. And it felt like that, because, like, when we did OzFest in 04, it just, that was just kind of the vibe, you know? Dez had to really prove himself to break through that barrier where new metal was not a cool thing anymore. It was, if you were a new metal band, it was was just not a good time to be a new metal band, it seemed. Everyone seemed to kind of shut up when we 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 released Last Kind Words. That was like, that was the end of it. We didn't have to prove ourselves anymore. Still to this day, I would say a majority of our fans liked that album the best out of all of our records. And it was, uh, yeah, it was like a turning point in our career where it was, we uh, finally started in the respect that I feel that we deserved. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And I'm glad that you're able to have that, uh, that introspection to realize that, you know, I I didn't know if you were going to be like, what are you talking about, man? We were not at all. Yeah. It was a little rough for a while because people wanted to hate us. And I had fans come up to me when we do these signings, you know, we were out at like Ozfest or, you know, just coming to our own shows or opening up for a lot of burger bands. Because I think after, right before we went in to go record last kind words, we had just finished our very first headlining tour ever in, in the States. And I remember Berkland and I, we had been out partying. It was like one of the last shows on the tour. We were at the place, I think, called the Gothic Theater outside of Denver. And he went partying someplace. I went somewhere else. And, you know, we were touring an RV back then. And we met back at almost the same time from partying all night long. And we just sat out front and had a cigarette with, you know, with each other. It's like, well, sun's about to come up. And, but we talked about, okay, third record, you know, this is, uh, you know, Fury was kind of a make or break point, but if we don't do it again, really need to do two solid records in a row to really earn the respect of the metal community, fans, our peers, everything. And I'll never forget that. Like sitting down with, with John that day, it was like precursor to, getting to the point where it was like, okay, we could very well have a very long career with this band. Once we released the record and started seeing the numbers and our, our shows getting bigger and bigger and more people coming to see us, even if we were opening up for a bigger band, that, that was really a moment when we didn't really have to try so hard anymore because we were, people were starting to respect us. Or didn't have to worry about it as much anymore. Right. You didn't have to find that identity. We were always trying hard, but yeah, did it, the worry went away. Now, you said that Berkland also, you, that's who you conflicted with the most um, creatively, despite the fact that it sounds like it's also the the uh, point that you both kind of realized that you needed to make this record. So I can understand that, though, just that pressure of you both understanding that this is a make or break album. So was there something that you can think of that maybe he was pushing for that you weren't into or vice versa? Not specifically, no. Okay, yeah, there actually was a pretty big... This was more amongst the band than it really was between me and Berkland, but there is a part at the end of the Axe Shell Fall. We finished up, we ran behind over at Sonic Ranch outside of El Paso when we were doing this record, and we had to finish up 
the uh, some of the vocals at a place called Sound Design in Santa Barbara. And a friend of ours' uh, dad owned the place, and really, really nice studio. You know, Depeche Mode has done stuff there. I believe The Cure has done stuff there. The the owner of the studio, I think his name was Dom, recorded some Hammond organ on the end of the Axial Fall, and I was never a fan of it. Not so much the tone or the fact that it was an organ, but it just I didn't like the take. I thought it could have been better. I wasn't there when they did it, and I just didn't like it. Uh, Des really liked it. Birkeland liked it. And I believe Jeff and Miller were kind of neutral or on my side of things. And we ended up keeping it, much to my dismay. But uh, that resulted in actually a pretty big argument amongst the band. It was like the last thing that... Before uh, we finished mixing it, I believe Andy Sneap was mixing it. And he just kind of needed to know, like, am I putting this on? Am I taking it off? What am I doing with it? So that was that was one of the times we conflicted. The other time that now I'm kind of remembering was on uh, these fighting wars. John just didn't really like that song very much. And... You know, he was more into kind of like a thrashy side of things. I was more into like the European melodic metal. And I wrote a majority of that song. He did write some of it too, but it, he just wasn't really feeling it. And Dez did not do vocals on that song until, uh, you know, we were running late and he ended up doing it on Santa Barbara. And I remember going up there to help out the guys or just hang out in the studio while they were doing stuff. And I remember driving home the next morning because they were in Santa Barbara, and I believe I had moved back to Torrance by then. And John called me and said that Des had put vocals on these fighting words, and now it's one of the best songs on the record. So you never know. It's, you went from one moment to thinking, like, this song might not even make the record to full-blown. This is one of the better songs on the record now. <laughs> so, and it's one of those songs that we we played live a lot, you know, probably more so than almost any other record or song on that record. Yeah, I feel like the uh, only two I ever see you play anymore are the first two, the... Wander our lost in clouds over California. I will say you got to get Monsters of the Deep and Tyrades of Truth into the set list. Those are that the last four songs on this album are just the, I mean, just a straight, it's, it's an embarrassment of riches. Those last four just are unbelievable. From Monsters of the Deep, Tyrades of Truth, When Summoned and Axe Shall Fall, it's incredible. When I first heard the Axe Shall Fall, I don't think I wrote a single thing in that song, but. Um, that was probably the, that was definitely the one song that I had nothing to do with on that record where I was like, teach me how to play this song because this song is so fucking awesome. Um, Jeff, uh, wrote a fair amount of that and, you know, it was, it just, you know, it goes so many different places and the way it starts, the bulk of the song. And then I'm pretty sure Miller wrote that, that clean ending. Um, Miller always wrote really cool stuff like that. You know, if you ever hear anything that sounds like the intro for end of the line or the actual, the ending of actual fall, you know, it's like, you know, the clean parts in the fury of our maker's hands. Like whenever you hear that stuff, he almost always was Miller. And um, when he first taught me, taught me how to play that, I was just like, Ooh man, we, we're definitely playing this song live. This song is just too cool. And uh, the funny thing is, that song never really went over live very well. 
the last time we played it was at a place called the Pearl Room that was outside of Chicago. It's a really, really cool venue. And we had played there a bunch of times. And it's like, you know, you kind of either play there or the House of Blues in Chicago. And we showed up there and everyone was like, yep, this is the last show here ever. We're closing down after the show today. And we're just like, no. And uh, funny enough, that was also the last time that we played the Axial Fall. And I don't think that was the last day of the tour. I think we all just kind of decided that the crowd was just standing around like a deer in headlights a little bit compared to everything else in our set. And I don't ever play that song since. I believe up until we got to beast, we played every song off every record. Well, there was two songs on every record that we didn't play. So we played a majority of last kind of words. We've never played uh, monsters of the deep and tyrage tyrage of truth pretty sure that we've played all the other songs on that. Oh, I would take it back we haven't we've never played bound by the by the moon either that was a weird one you know everyone really liked in the in the uh, in the band bound by the moon you know so much that we made it the third track on the record and Jason Sukoff did the solo on that one because Jeff and I didn't have anything for it and Jason was just one of those guys ah give me the guitar you give it to him and he writes something like one or two passes and I'm like yeah keep it so I will tell you that my favorite, it's not my favorite song, but my favorite riff on the whole album is the is on Bound by the Moon. Is it? It's uh it's go. kinda like a the bridge and then it comes back at the end, but it's like and just you know has that chugging behind it too, and I think that's so sick. There, you know, it started to kind of even out a little bit more between me and him over time. You know, when we got to win kills, you know, he and I, Miller wasn't in the band anymore at that point. And uh, the majority of that record was written by, by me and John. Just, you know, ever since I joined the band, you know, I, I tried to tread lightly, you know, it's and you got to pay your dues. And just over time, I started getting a little bit more pushy and. Uh, Monty Connor from Roadrunner, you know, luckily had my back and he liked hold back the day so much when I first joined the band that uh, I believe he actually called John at one point and was like, you need to let Mike write a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, Monty Connor helped for sure. We'll be back after a quick break. If you love good music and good podcasts, you'll love Roots Music Rambler. I'm Jason Falls. My co-host Francesca Folinazzo and I talk to the singers, songwriters, musicians, and more in Americana, alt-country, bluegrass, folk, blues, and beyond. We share our own takes on the latest news in the space and recommend new music for you to explore every episode. Come get to the roots of the music you love. Find us at RootsMusicRambler.com or go wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to Roots Music Rambler. Well, you mentioned that Jason Sukoff, of course, produces it. The only record of yours that, and when I say yours, I mean Devil Drivers, that uh, he produces. And, uh, you know, I feel like that gives it a unique sound compared to what comes before and after it. Kind of um, almost like a, not a gloss, because this the whole thing with this album for me, I feel like it has a lot of punch that, you know, Jason kind of is known for. He had done Trivium, I think, right before this, too. So what is something that mm-hmm. you think, um, I was going to say, what is something you think Jason uh contributed to the album but you're telling me he's pretty hands-on he's doing guitar solos and things like that 
I mean, Mark Lewis was his engineer at the time, so he was there with us the whole time. And I would actually say that Mark had more to do with all the guitar work than than Jason did. Jason, I think he really shined and took the lead on vocals and drums. And with guitars, I don't remember him being in the studio a whole lot with us compared to how much, you know, Mark was in there at the time. And Mark was in there the whole time because he was engineering the whole thing. And he was still kind of working his way up the ranks at the time. And we liked Mark so much that he ended up producing like three or four more records after that with us. But um, the reason we went with Jason and Mark is, like I said, you know, we had just finished our first headlining tour in the States before we went and recorded this record. And um, Barrier Dead was direct support for us. And they had just released their record, Beauty and the Breakdown. And Jason and Mark had worked on that record together. And that is pretty much the reason why we picked Jason and Mark to uh, work on that record with us is because of Barrier Dead's beautiful breakdown. It sounded good. It was just an incredible record. We just got off tour with Barrier Dead and saw how, how amazing they were live. And if we can get a product that's as good sounding as Beauty and the Breakdown, then more you know we're going to be very, very happy. And uh, Jason just knows guitars he knows drums he knows uh vocals you know he's just one of those mad scientists that uh you know if you're gonna if you're gonna work with him you're gonna have a good product in the end in the end run and you are a producer yourself so at this time are you you're doing like pre-production on demos is what you're saying you're you're like kind of uh helping shape the songs before you guys even get into the studio yeah i took an interest in recording when when i was 18 there was a recording class at Santa Barbara City College when I was going there, and I, that's started me out with. In the main reason I got into recording wasn't to be a producer, wasn't to mix records or to engineer or do anything like that. I just wanted to, you know, to save myself money when the time came when I had to record myself, and because, you know, growing up and listening to music in the '90s, Pro Tools wasn't around, home recording wasn't really a thing yet, and I figured. You know, the only way I'm going to be able to do this cheaply is if I learn how to do it myself. So I just started learning how to do it, teaching myself, I think, two classes at Santa Barbara City College. I took one at UCSB. Didn't really learn a whole lot from those classes as much as I learned from, you know, Jason, Mark, Steve Evitz, you know, all the guys that have produced Devil Driver stuff over the years. You know, I probably got to the point where I was a little bit of a pain in the ass because I was just constantly asking them questions. You know, what are you doing? How are you doing that? Why are you doing all this stuff? So I had some decent equipment at the time and, you know, had the ability to program drums and record guitar just at least, you know, have something that was recorded that we could listen to in our cars and kind of help get a night, you know, get ideas brewing and also cutting the fat off of songs. Because if you listen to something over and over, you know, in your car, you know, day in and day out, certain parts are you're going to start hearing them and go, eh, I could do something better there. Or I did like that part and now I don't like it anymore. So we were doing a lot of that and I just really enjoy it. You know, I like producing. I like um, my favorite thing is mixing because I guess I get to do it all by myself and, you know, <laughs> and uh, don't have to be in a room with a bunch of people can kind of wake up, you know, start working and just work until your ears don't uh can't hear anything right anymore and then call it a day 
Well, that's, that's definitely a good uh, list of mentors to have uh, when you're coming up. And is there a producer that you would want to work with with Devil Driver or someone that you've tried to work with that it didn't work out? No. Uh, I do miss... I am a little bummed that I didn't get to, to work with Ross Hogarth on the first one because he's not really a metal producer, but he did Cole Chambers' third record. And we actually... we. I think we ended up going with, he was going to produce either Pray for Villains or Beast. And we had a couple of meetings with Ross. I can't remember which record it was, but in the long run, I think he was just too expensive for us at the time. And he and I have talked on numerous occasions and he seems like a cool guy, but I, it would have been really interesting to see how thing, he he does things as a producer, because I'm sure it's a lot different than the other guys that we've we've worked with. But as far as other producers that I would like to work with, God, I, th- I would have to say maybe like Joe Barisi. I think he uh, would be an interesting one to work with. But uh, uh, Mark Lewis and Steve Evitz, you know, as far as Devil Driver goes, I can't see us not going with one of those two guys in the future. They've been my favorites. Have you ever considered doing some sort of like industrial collaboration with maybe not a producer so much, but maybe like, a, you know, like a Reese Fulber or something like that to do like a remix of something? I would love to. I did. Uh, uh, I didn't do the remix. I did play guitar on it, but my friend Duncan that lives in London got asked to do a remix for Raymond Watts from Cam FDM for his band Pig. And uh, I recorded some guitars and sent him the tracks and you know he reworked it and made the this remix of uh, a pig song that I'm featured on so I have done it actually and Kim FDM was one of my favorite bands growing up so it was it was pretty exciting for me to be working with Raymond Watts oh yeah no that's really sick I mean there's almost kind of like I, I can almost hear maybe an industrial remix of Monsters of the Deep or something just that driving you know double bass you could easily put a drum track or something over that and make it uh, really fill up a dance floor. There was also talk of us possibly doing something like that with excision because he's a big devil driver fan. And, but when the opportunities came up, I remember Des trying to get us to work on something with him, but it was one of those moments where we were really pressed for time trying to get an album done. And none of us really wanted to just like, okay, stop what we're doing. Let's work on this. And then, try to get back in the headspace of the record after that. We're like, nah, this is not a good time to do it, but definitely see something like that happening in the future with excision. If he was still down to do something like that. Do you remember what the first song is that you wrote for last kind words that uh, you kind of knew was you guys going in the right direction of what you were trying to accomplish with this, this pivotal turning point. All the other guys were still living in Santa Barbara at the time. And I was living in Torrance. So we were two hours away from one another. And we would all write on our own uh, Miller and Berkland had a t- tendency to write a lot together and they would just get their ideas together, bring them down to my house. And I'm not exactly sure what order, you know, they did that in, but see the, the songs that I had a heavy hand in are clouds over California, these fighting words head on to heartache. And I wrote a solo on not all who, uh, not all who wonder are lost. And I want to say that the, one of the first things I wrote uh, for Devil Driver was the chorus in Clouds Over California. Yeah. 
That was something that I wrote when I was probably 20, 21. There's a, there's a riff on there from another, I was in another band at the time before I joined Double Driver and those songs never got used. And I started just digging through some of my old files, trying to see what I had, you know, to work on. And the, you know, the natural harmonics that, that I played during over the chorus, it's not exactly the same thing as it was for the song that I had with one of my previous bands. But, uh, I remember, you know, I'm just sitting at home being like, Oh, I'm going to try to use that. And, one thing led to another and turned into clouds over California. Oh, wow. That's really cool that you can have like uh, this early song that you can bring in to be a uh, integral part of your entire music career. Cause I mean, clouds over California, one of the bigger devil driver songs across the board, not just for this record. Yeah. Who would have thought, right. And I, I remember where I was living when I wrote that riff in Santa Barbara. Yeah, it must've been God five years when I finally pulled it out and turned it into clouds over California. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> you never know. Sometimes when I get writer's block, I'll, do that. I'll just start opening up old projects and uh, I'll find riffs that I don't even remember writing and be like, Oh, that's cool. You know, and start working it until something cool happens. <laughs> that's so sick. They'll be like, Oh, you know what influenced you uh, myself 10 years ago? Exactly. The uh, the title comes from lyrics from Tirades of Truth, which uh, I think is like a biblical reference. It sounds like what my man God would tell Adam and Eve in the garden after the original sin. I don't know that for a fact, but seems like something that a devil driver lyric would be. But do you know why you guys chose Last Kind Words as the, the title for the album? Do you know what that meant for, for the record? We'll be back after a quick break. But you still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your, in your little, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. We all, we all artists over here, man. I'm trying, right? Yeah, oh, I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying, oh, yeah. I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. yeah. Damn, Damn, We're gonna have this like bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play we play with this <laughs> shit. Right play now. With this I gotta lie, we play with this shit right now for real. Oh, don't play with it, don't play with it. No. take that shit sir. For both the Fury and the Last Kind Words, we were recording at uh, Sonic Ranch outside of El Paso, Texas. And both times I remember being in, uh, the, the guy that owns the studio is a guy named Tony. And, you know, when Saturday, Friday or Saturday night comes around, he'll drive you into town, which is, you know, at least the 30, 40 minute drive from where the ranch is, was really out in the middle of nowhere. And just to kind of help you guys get over the cabin fever, being on this pecan ranch with basically nothing around other than your bandmates and whoever works at the studio. So um, usually Fridays or Saturdays, he would take us out to kind of just, uh, you know, relax for a little while, go out and drink. And both times I remember just sitting, you know, Des was in the passenger passenger seat up front and a bunch of us piled in the back of Tony's car and him just, you know, throwing out ideas. And one time it was, what do you think about calling it the theory of our maker's hand? And we're like, yes. You know, all everyone in the car just say, yeah, that, that's good. That's it. And the same exact 
thing happened with Last Kind Words, if I remember it correctly. Just being in Tony's car, driving to a bar, and uh, we're talking about the record, and Des just threw out that line, and uh, universally it was just, yep, that's it. When we came up with titles, not so much with songs, but with album titles, it was it was usually pretty easy for us. There was no argument. You know, eventually Des would say something, or one of the guys would be looking through his lyrics, and someone would shout it out, and once everyone was universally yes, and there was no more talk about it. That was it. That's a diplomatic process to go through. Hey, do you guys like this sentence? Yeah, we do. All right, let's go. Didn't always happen like that, but that was one of the things that came easy to us. Not All Who Wander Are Lost, the first song on the album. Um, Where I live in the South, that's uh, pretty much on every tire cover of a sorority girl's Jeep in like a cursive font. It'll be like, Not All Who Wander Are Lost and... Usually you get a sea creature tattoo for your grandmother and then the not all who wander are lost forearm. I remember just thinking like, that's a really long title. You sure you want to use that? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Roll with it. So you were talking about Ozfest 2004. You guys are kind of the, the black sheep of the family or it's after a little bit new metal is over. Des is still, of course, a prominent figure in that world. And to this day, you know, just a, a very larger than life musician. But a couple of years later, when this comes out, 2007 you're back on Ozfest different situation for you do you guys feel validated and accepted by uh, that community this second time around yeah by then okay then that was the free Ozfest where they were giving it was kind of like a raffle for all the tickets and being free the second stage was not what the second stage used to be it was basically you know a uh, a trailer that opened up and you did not have the rolling drum risers because you only get five minutes to do a set change at Ozfest. And I think we did have, we did have a couple techs with us, but we didn't roll with a crew. Like we have, like we do now. It was, it was bare bones touring for sure. And we got added late. There was a band called Mondo generator that was on the tour and they dropped off. There were basically, you know, there are three headlining slots on the second stage and we got, luckily we got one of those spots that we got to go on at the same time every day, rather than in 2004, where you're constantly going on, on a different, at a different time. It was a little bit more stressful because they did not have like the, the, the rolling drum risers where it's like, okay, you can get your drum set set up, get everything mic'd up and get your, your amps on stage, your cap, just line them up behind whoever's, you know, currently on the stage. And you just kind of push them forward as, as time goes on, it didn't have any of that. So that was stressful as fuck. If you got five minutes, you'll take five minutes. If you get 10 minutes, it'll take you 10 minutes, you know, but. Well, let's go back for a second. You saying you were a late addition to Ozfest 2007, because you mentioned Mondo Generator was originally going to be on. And that was a, that was a big story at the time. So Mondo Generator was Nick Oliveri's new band from Queens of the Stone Age. And originally Ozfest asked Queens of the Stone Age to be on the tour, and Josh from Queens of the Stone Age declined. So as a sign of uh, retaliation, so to speak, Ozfest invited Mondo Generator to be on, kind of just to piss Queens of the Stone Age off. But 
after Mondo Generator agreed, they ended up not doing the tour. So how did uh, you actually get added on? Was Were you just like the contingency plan for if that didn't happen? Or how, do you know how that went down? We were doing a listening party at this place called On the Rocks. It's above the Roxy on Sunset Boulevard for our uh, The Last Kind Words. And our uh, it's Miller... The story is all, it's all coming back to me now. Miller was not there because he was dating um, uh, Maria from In This Moment at the time. And they were on OzFest. Mondo Jenner dropped off. And I believe uh, Miller was there with one of, um, God, it's, it's this guy named John that helps uh, Sharon Osbourne run OzFest. And you know, we didn't have anything going on that summer. You know, we were releasing a new record or the record was eventually coming out soon, but um, we weren't going to be on tour because of, I don't know. I don't know what happened scheduling conflicts and we just did, just didn't work out. But uh, you know, he just kind of threw it out there to John, like dude, devil drivers at home, not doing shit. So we uh, at, at the, uh, the listening party, I remember just being like, you're like, dude, go home and pack. We're leaving for Ozfest in two days. Like, what? Okay. <laughs> so, um, went home, packed. Two days later, we're doing another round of Ozfest, and you know, this time it was the second time for the band doing it. When we did Ozfest in 04, I had only done two tours at that point. I had that was my first time touring the states was on Ozfest, um, and the only tour I had done before that was in Europe with In Flames when I was just supposed to be a temporary fill-in for Evan Pitts and came home, joined the band, did the fury, you know, and by this time we had quite a bit of touring under our belts. We toured relentlessly for the two years after we released fury and, you know, had done some summer festivals in Europe, had done Ozfest, had done, you know, uh, what was that festival? The sounds of the underground in 2005. So, we were a much more professional band by the time 2007 hit and we went out on that Ozfest. So it was, it was much more comfortable and confident too, probably. Right. A hundred percent, much more confident. Was Sharon Osborne ever devil drivers manager? Nope. She would come by and say hi from time to time. Um, and, uh, you know, mostly just to say hi to Des because of uh, their history together, but no, Sharon, uh, managing us that never, that, I don't know if that was ever an option. I'm sure that, uh, Des probably talked to her at some point about it, but I don't ever remember Des telling me that, uh, he was looking into it or anything like that to have <laughs> her manage it. So at the time that this album comes out, it's kind of what a lot of people might consider like the classic devil driver lineup. You got Des on vocals, you got you on guitar, Jeff on guitar, John Miller on bass. Berklin on drums. You guys do several albums together. Since then, now out of that group, it's just you and Des that are left. So, what is it that you have with Des as far as a working relationship? How do you understand each other that you're able to remain uh, working together and that maybe other people aren't? A number of things. I do feel like me and Des got along better than he did with the other three guys for the most part, probably because we have similar interests as far as, you know, 
you know, goth music, industrial music, stuff like that. The other three guys were never into that. And we, we could bond over stuff like that. Truth be told when, you know, Berkland and Jeff decided to leave, you know, Miller was already out. Um, as much as I love those guys, you know, there's, there's absolutely no animosity between any of us. Like we're all friends. You know, I still talk to Jeff, you know, we all talked yesterday. Um, and you know, we're on a group text on WhatsApp and we, you know, we throw jokes out to each other on a regular basis, but I was kind of excited to, uh, have more writing influence on the records without so many arguments. And when Neil and Austin joined the band and we started writing together, I mean, in all the stuff that we've worked on together, the, the four of us, the three of us that, uh, I mean, not, not one single argument <laughs> just, and it just, unfortunately wasn't really like that with the old lineup. Um, not to say that we didn't have fun together. I mean, we did have fun together writing, but um, it was, it was kind of a struggle for us to get to a common ground. Sometimes it was a little bickering. It wasn't like full blown arguments. Oh, fuck you. I hate you this or whatever that it was just, we had to, you know, go through a little bit of trouble to, of compromising and uh, some days better than others to, uh, to finish the song. So when they left the band, yeah, it was, it was a little bit of a relief, but then, you know, coming around when I was doing trust no one, it, uh, before I, you know, I started writing before we even found Neil and Austin and it felt a little wrong. And I remember it was literally like, you know, I was building the studio that we're, that I'm in right now. And I remember I had my ladder up against this wall right here. And I had just gotten started. And I remember I looked around and, I mean, this thing took me almost two years to build. I remember thinking, like, I'm going to build this studio so we all have this nice open space, you know, with an air conditioner rather than being this hot, sweaty rehearsal studio you know, that uh, is absolutely miserable to work in for more than an hour straight because we had no air conditioning and everyone's going to probably quit the band or something. The band's going to break up or something like that. And then sure enough, I think Berkland and I, he, he came over here and we worked on one song together before he decided to leave Devil Driver. And then that was it. So, you know, I ended up building this very cozy uh, place to have a vibe, more room, you know, just to uh, make our writing sessions a lot more enjoyable. And by the time I got it done, the lineup had changed. It was completely different. Oprah calls that the secret. You put that out in the world that the band was going to all leave because you were making the studio and then it happened. You're the cause. Now we know. Yeah. I mean, I, I really did not want them to, to it, it, it was very bittersweet, mostly bitter because, you know, they are my friends and, you know, we, we'd spent so much time together on the road and, you know, when Miller left and then when I got the call that Jeff and Berkland were going to leave, you know, it was, it was rough, you know, because you don't know what's going to happen with the band. And, uh, I'm sure, you know, a lot of, a lot of the fans, you know, when lineup changes happen, it's, not the happiest of moments, but uh, could have been worse if they stayed in the band. Who knows? But also, it sounds like those conflicts maybe resulted in 
you know, some albums that you're still proud of to this day. So maybe they, maybe that uh, animosity had to exist to make these songs. Well, you know, another thing too is by the time that they had left the band and I, we started working on Trust No One, you know, with, with Neil and Austin, we are older. And when from, you know, the, the fury of our maker's hands up until winter kills, you know, we were just a bunch of dumb kids, you know, in their 20s all drinking too much. Some of us sort of had gotten into drugs and, you know, you're more arrogant, you're stupid, <laughs> you, you know, and you're worrying about things that really you shouldn't be worrying about. Like, Oh, my riff isn't on this song. I'm going to throw a fit, you know, and things like that, you know, where it's by the time that the lineup had changed, I think almost everybody in the band had, would have gotten to the point where it's like all that stuff I was worrying about before. I'm not going to worry about it anymore. So um, there was definitely a lot of that going on too. Well, you mentioned from Fury of Our Maker's Hand to Winter Kills. I mean, that's the run. You know, that's the five solid albums back to back to back to back to back. Is there a favorite for you out of those five, or one that you think is the best? There's something about Pray for Villains that I really, really like too, and. You know, that's uh, that's a record that we did with Logan Mater. The band was at a real breaking point when we did that record. There was a fair amount of infighting. None of us were around when Des did the vocals. It's like we went in with Logan, we did the music, and then we were just like, see ya. And then he came and did the the, the uh, did all the vocals. We didn't want to be there. He didn't want us there. You know, it was just, the, the Pray for Villains was the dark times, for sure. It was quite a bit different record. Kind of felt like Fury was like, okay, this is what Devil Driver is really going to be. Okay. And then we polished it for last kind words. And then when we got to Pray for Villains, we just got to the point where it's like, you know what? Got some riffs that are a little, might be a little unorthodox for Devil Driver, but we're going to use them anyway. And, um, did a lot of songs on that record. I want to say it was like 15 or something like that, maybe even 16 songs. But um, I, I do like a lot of the material. Like my proudest solo, for sure. I've been sober. Probably the solo I'm most proud of in the whole Devil Driver catalog. And so, you know, you never know what you're going to get when uh, you start experimenting with new things. But overall, I would say Last Kind Words is my favorite Devil Driver record. And as far as solos go, the solo on Head On To Heartache is my favorite one and on that record. Even the leads and solos, there's not a ton of those. So when they do pop up like on Head On To Heartache, I think it makes it stand out more in a good way also. I think that was just the mo that we were in. You know, Des was, he was hungry as all hell because he... He had to prove himself twice, which in the music industry is not easy to do. You know, usually people leave a band, they start a new band and they it's another failure or a, a mild success. But and I think it's very rare that a singer will leave a band that he can attribute to to his success and then create leave that band and create another band that's even cooler. Like it just doesn't happen very often. So he was hungry because he had to prove himself and we were all hungry just because all four of us, ever since we were little kids, all we did, all we cared about 
every single day since the morning, the, the second we woke up to the moment we went to bed was I have to be a successful musician, no matter what. And it, there was just no question in any of our minds, you know, and, you know, there was a point when we were listening, you know, we had two of the best metal producers in the world, in my opinion, working on this record with us. We had gone out and toured relentlessly for the last two years off the Fury and slowly watched us, you know, started going to shows and seeing people come with Devil Driver tattoos with the cross on it. You know, like that became more of like a regular thing. Like, okay, you know, we're obviously people are digging us enough to get a tattoo of our symbol on them. So we're obviously doing something right here. And I think deep down, we knew that we created a really special record when, when we finished that. And we kind of knew even before going into the studio because we demoed everything. So a lot of the songs, you know, we never did pre-production with a, producer until um dealing with demons one and two we never went in with the producer and in a rehearsal space and jammed the songs and with the producer there and made changes that was all done just the four of us you know des was never really around for when we were working on music we'd finish the songs and then we'd send it to him to work on but um it was basically you know, doing a lot of surgery and a lot of the songs over time for probably over the course of a year. And uh, once we get them where they were, send them to Des and then go to a studio and basically do it all over again. Yeah, obviously, you know, our producers, Mark, Jason, they had some suggestions, especially with solos. I never really worked on solos until the last minute. I always have a tendency to do that for some reason. Like when Berkland's working on drums or Jeff is recording guitar and Berkland recorded a lot of the guitar as well. Uh, a lot of rhythm guitar stuff on every record he was a part of. Um, when they were doing that, I was like, you know, I'll need something to do. And that's when I'll write my solos. So I think we knew before we went in that this record was going to be badass, And then by the time we finished it, that, uh, that feeling was amplified greatly and then when it came out and we started seeing the numbers and the reviews we were just we we're all as happy as hell you know i don't remember reading a bad review on that record yeah no i, I think it was universally acclaimed because the, the worst thing anybody would say about it is like it was better than they thought it was going to be you know <laughs> it's like the meanest thing they could really say like oh you know what i didn't think it was going to be good and it's actually pretty good you know i think that was kind of the uh the universal appeal of it is that if you were already a devil driver fan, you were psyched. And if you weren't a devil driver fan before you're like, Oh, I think I've been missing out because this is pretty sick. Is there anything on the last kind words that you would do differently now? I still wish I could either have a better take or just take that Hammond off the end of the act shell fall completely. But still that part, yeah. right? The, the, uh, the like clean guitar and everything. You just don't want the organ on the top of it. Exactly. What do you think of the organ? Do you like the organ? Uh, the organ is a little corny to me, but that part as a whole is like the coolest part of the whole record. Like just when it goes from the song into that, you know, clean, almost like flamenco guitar. Um, but the organ does kind of, I'm not going to lie, does kind of take me out of it where I'm like, oh, are we in an Old West movie now or something? Because I thought we were, it doesn't ruin the song for me though. Like I said, I still think that's the coolest part of the record. It, you know, the way that it ends the album, I think is such a 
cool way to do it. Very unexpected without being like silly, you know, cause sometimes people will do stuff like that. They'll end a record and it'll be like this, almost like they want it to be like a cinematic thing, but it doesn't feel silly. It just, it just feels completely jarring, but like, you're like, Oh no, I'm, I like where this went. Um, and I, I don't know if, I mean, obviously I've noticed the organ, but I know <laughs> it's not as big of a point of contention for me as it is for you. I guess that's what I'm saying. Funny story about that. I'm going to tell you how I embarrassed myself <laughs> over that song. We were on tour somewhere in the States where, and you know, we had to have a discussion because we had had a discussion about this organ in the past, but it was never resolved. Like we'll decide later. We'll decide later. We'll decide later because every time it probably ended up in an argument. I remember being in the, in the, uh, the front lounge of the bus, all the guys with our manager, Eddie Ortel at the time. And Eddie always brought out this big computer bag, you know, the ones with like the handle wheels on it. And he always kind of left it over by the steps heading down to the door of the bus. So we're talking about it. And at some point in the conversation, it got really heated. And I was like, that's it. I'm storming out of the room. I don't want to have anything to do with this. I'm just leaving this conversation because this is going nowhere. Everyone's yelling at one another. And so I get up and it was on the other side, you know, there's a curtain <laughs> that leads, you know, so people can't see into the bus right there. So I didn't see the bag. The bag was on the other side of the curtain. And of course, Des likes to have about every light on the bus to about 5% of its capacity. So you can't see shit on the bus in general anyway. So it's dark as fuck. And, you know, and Des, for the most part, he doesn't have to get off the bus as, mo- as, as much as the other guys do. So we're going on and off the bus. And when you come on, you're, you know, in the middle of summertime outside, you come on the bus and you can't see shit because your eyes are used to blazing sunlight outside. So I'm storming off the bus. I ripped the, the curtain and I don't see Eddie's bag. And I literally fell down all the steps in front of everybody. Oh. And while you're trying to make a dramatic um, exit. Exactly. So my dramatic exit completely failed. But so I left the bus, you know, I'm all dinged up. I literally I was literally bleeding from falling on the steps at some point, you know, nothing bad. But after I left, everyone held it in. But as soon as that bus door closed, everybody in the bus started laughing. And so, you know. Hadn't I fallen down the bus steps at that moment, that argument probably would have carried on for at least another 10 minutes. But, and I don't know what exactly was said, but by the time I calmed myself, came back to the bus, I, uh, I had found out that they had, uh, told Snee keep the, the organ in. And, uh, that was that. Yeah. I think when you fell down, you lost the argument. Like you, you defaulted, you know, you like forfeit. I think I remember Miller being the deciding factor because I'm pretty sure Jeff and I didn't want it on there. Berkland and Des really did. And Miller was kind of remaining neutral and he didn't really want to side with one, one way or the other, but I guess eventually he probably gave his blessing to keep it on the record. Now that's interesting to me and probably to a lot of people that you're saying that Des wanted it on, but that it was still a point of discussion. So he wasn't a uh, a tyrant with these <laughs> decisions. It wasn't like to him, his band, it was still uh, a full group effort. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, 
sometimes he wasn't very happy with the outcome, but sometimes he got his way and sometimes we put up enough of a fight where he ended up going with what we thought was best. Um, a couple examples are is like the midsection of end of the line, for example, was probably twice as long originally. Des and Berkland had had a pretty heavy discussion about cutting that down. Berkland didn't want to cut down. Des wanted to cut down. But even in the long run, you know, I'm sure I've had the conversation with Berkland at one point and be like, yeah, that part needed to be cut down. But then there were other things where, you know, I remember Des not really liking the intro for End of the Line, which I think is one of our cooler moments and has served as our intro for probably over a thousand of our live shows you know that's what we play before we take the stage i could see why he didn't want to go that direction because when we wrote that song he was still in the mindset of i you know i got to be heavy i got to be hard i can't i got to get away get away from the whole cold chamber thing and writing clean pretty riffs is probably not the best way to do that but um that was an argument where we were all like, Des, just <laughs> trust us. This part is cool. Leave it in. Eventually, leave it in. Yeah, I, I can see what you guys are saying now. Well, um, but yeah, he was very, you know, with, with a lot of decisions like that, he let us decide. And, you know, we were there to kind of critique a lot of his his uh, vocal performances. You know, the, uh, the Fear of Our Maker's Hand, that song was originally called My God Has Horns. And, um, you know, we weren't, yeah, I don't even think he was really feeling it at, at that time, but, um, eventually he, uh, he went in and just completely rewrote that song and it turned into the fury of our maker's hand, which ended up being the album title, you know? So the more you work in a band that you start to get to the point where it's, you know, you're sick of all the arguing, uh, you don't care so much much if someone says you don't like you know or they say they don't like something that you wrote and you stop taking it personally and you know as long as you're with the right type of people you know it's working with other people can get you out of a jam you know and kind of point you in a direction make you go oh i never thought about doing that of course yeah that's a good idea so even between me and berkeley by the time we got to winter kills there wasn't really a whole lot of bickering between us about things you know, that was that was something that kind of phased itself out as we got older, the more time we spent writing together. And I think both of us started to feel like, oh, everything that other guy writes doesn't suck and actually might be better than something that I bring to the table. I should embrace that rather than just shooting it down uh, right away. And yeah, so things actually even though they ended up quitting the band in the long run uh, at that point, I think things had were getting easier for us in our writing environment. What is your favorite moment of making last kind words or your favorite thing about the album in general? I know it's not the organ. It was a good feeling that uh, the three songs that I um, really had a heavy hand in writing ended up being three out of the four songs that we mostly that we always play live for the most part you know i got a little bit of that justification on fury with hold back the day because that was the first song that was released from that record and 
you know, if I had written a bunch of material for Fury that didn't get used and I wrote a bunch of material for The Last Kind of Words that didn't get used, you know, it would have, in my mind, I would have seen my writing as a little bit of a failure up to that point. But luckily that didn't happen. I didn't want to be a guy in a band that just played guitar. I wanted to write, you know, I thought it was, it was important for me. So, um, one of my favorite moments was definitely when I was driving in my car and Brooklyn called me and t- told me that fighting words is now one of the better songs on the record. I was just like, fuck yeah. Like, you know, I was, is that song going to turn into a B side and, or is it just, you know, we've recorded songs that just, you know, we spent so much time at Sonic Ranch. I, everything kind of did three records there. So, Everything kind of mixes together a little bit. I do remember having fun, though. Every time that we were at Sonic Ranch, we had a good time. You know, it was some good days, some bad days, but by far and away, mostly good days. Thanks so much to Mike for talking to us about the best Devil Driver album. Not my favorite, though. What's my favorite? Now well, you'll find out eventually. But since Mike and I spoke, John Miller, bassist for the band, has actually rejoined Devil Driver. They have a revamped lineup, and they're getting ready to announce some touring plans. I'm guessing probably some album plans, all kinds of plans. They're planters, all right? Not to be confused with Planters, which is a peanut brand that would not only kill me due to my allergy, but also killed their mascot, Mr. Peanut. And I'm glad he's dead. But what's not dead is the vinyl reproductions of these Devil Driver albums, including, but not limited to, The Last Kind Words, released as a box set through BMG entitled Clouds Over California, which is a song on The Last Kind Words. And that's full circle. Do you think they sent me one? They did not. But I think you should still get it because it looks pretty cool. It's all the vinyl pressings that they actually put out in 2018. They repackaged them in a cool box that's all kind of like kind of looks like a crate like oh yo don't open this crate the devil might be driven inside of it and uh that's sick right in the meantime and in between time you can follow the show on instagram at meet me pod you can follow devil driver on instagram at devil driver you can follow uh the rock on instagram at the rock he's uh sometimes got a toilet in his gym it's true I don't think he sometimes has it. I think the toilet's always there. I don't think it moves around. But it's like in the middle of the room, you know? It's not like in a separate bathroom. Anyway, uh, my name is Ryan Rainbow. This is Meep Meep. And yes, that's the best that I can come up with. Bye! Bye!